Hello everyone, my name is Pamela Pitcher and welcome to my podcast, Awaken to the Best You. This podcast is designed to inspire and propel you to a newfound level of empowerment and clarity. Through cultivating the art of thinking, you'll learn how to detangle your thought knots and train your brain to break through obstacles. You'll learn to focus on what matters most and make effective choices to become a remarkable you. I first met Hircha Samlich about 11 years ago when my husband and I were staying at the Sonoma Mission Inn and Spa in Sonoma, California. At the spa, I found a brochure advertising sessions with her. Both my husband and I had readings with her shortly thereafter. It was a fascinating reading. She began by asking my name and from there, she went on to tell me about the colors that the vibration of my name represented, past lives I had led, including one with my husband, and what she saw for my future work. I was confused about my work at that time, having left the finance industry, and was looking for insight because I knew a different direction lay ahead of me. I saw several possibilities and asked for guidance. Based on what she told me then, it's no wonder that I've created the podcast Awaken to the Best You. I didn't know that podcast existed back then. Briefly, she told me that the essence of my being is fueled by my fourth chakra that represents humanity, compassion, my connection with the world. It stands for our intent. Mine is compassion for people and humanity with a spiritual awareness. If I don't believe in something, I can't do it, she said. She was spot on. Ircha was born in the Netherlands into a troubled family that caused her to leave home at an early age. She was born with a strong intuition and desire for knowledge. Before becoming a minister, healer, and intuitive counselor, she was an interpreter speaking Dutch, English, French, and Italian. She, like I, realized that perception is important. Our perception learned by our socialization creates our self-image. Speaking with Hircha is a pleasure. She reinforces the divinity in all of us. We as humans are not beneath being spiritual. There is no hierarchy. We are all part of all that is. She believes that it is important to honor us by leading an authentic and meaningful life. She also believes there are no coincidences. So if you're listening to this podcast, I know there is a message for you. I hope you find Hircha as inspirational as I do. If you'd like to reach out to her yourself, you can find her at www.spiritual-communication.com. I give you Hircha Samlich. Hello, Hircha. I'm excited and grateful to have you as my guest today. Welcome to Awaken to the Best You. Good morning, Pamela. It's really great to be here and thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. When I read about you on your website and LinkedIn and other places, I've learned that you're a business and life coach, officiator and counselor. Yet I feel those words are limiting as they don't express all that you have to offer. So how would you describe what you do? I consider myself a spiritual counselor, minister, coach, and just a guide. I have the privilege to be present in the lives of people at their best and worst times. 
And I just like to hold space for people, communicate, allow people to be who they are in all of those moments uh, at a time of difficulty, at a time of celebration, at a time of transition, at a time of inspiration, at a time of growth, to be present and sometimes to be very actively present, sometimes just to hold space for people. And it teaches me a lot. And I feel very honored that I'm able to do that in this life. After we had our initial conversation before this podcast, when I told my husband that you help people with hospice trajectory, he said that he would love to have someone help him pass. I certainly agree with him that it's a very unique gift that you offer the world. Could you just take a moment to describe that part of your practice? Yes. When people are ill, usually, and know that they're going to die, or people are in more of an emotional state where they know that they don't want to live, and Sometimes it's a physical thing that people know that they want to die. Sometimes people don't have the will to live. There are two different trajectories, but they're very closely related. Sometimes people have the need or the desire to come to terms with themselves, regardless of what decision they make, and to be able to be fully seen and allowed to be themselves in those moments is very powerful because People that face life and death situations don't beat around the bush. They are brutally honest and they have the need to say exactly what they feel and what they think without holding back, without filter, without being politically correct or polite. Also, they need that communication back. So oftentimes when people facing illnesses that they might not recover from, a lot of people around them that might not be ready to see that person go will say, no, it's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. You're going to get through this. And that sometimes might be true, but sometimes that also might feel like you're not allowed to be where you're at or go where you are naturally want to go or ready to go. And that's not always the right thing to say or even the most loving thing to say, even though you want to encourage somebody. So for me, when I get involved in life and death situations, it's so important to tune into where the spirit or the person or the being is and to just allow that to come to the surface and give permission and space for whatever is to unfold. Everyone is really in charge of their own life and death process. And to just give permission for whatever is there without any agenda or any ideas of what I think should happen for a person that is in that space can be very healing and powerful and meaningful. Some of the most incredible conversations and meetings happen at those times between me and other people and also between people among themselves when there is the permission and the energy to really be that truthful and direct with each other. Sounds like it's a very liberating time for a lot of people, which I think is wonderful. And having you as their support at that time is also a great thing. I know that a lot of people are scared of dying. Do you find that kind of lessens towards the end because you've mentioned how liberating it is and they have no filters and they're brutally honest? Do you find it's the mindset changes somewhat? The mindset changes. A lot of From people are afraid of dying and 
I've seen when someone is still not ready to face it, there's a lot of fear. Or when someone is surrounded by people who are not ready to let that person go, that energy sometimes can show up as I'm not ready or I'm afraid, which is not necessarily true. But once someone is, and I think it's a really internal process, not always visible, when someone is actually ready to do this, and usually it's always the spirit who leaves the body, it's never the body that fails the spirit. It's a spiritual decision to be born, and it's also a spiritual decision to die. So when the spirit is actually ready to do that, there's always a sense of liberation, a sense of relief, and a peace immediately. It comes, and it's an incredible moment. And also in that moment, not only make people peace with the fact that they're dying, but also oftentimes with their life. If there's enough time, there's a lot of need to explain something or apologize for something or ask for something or reveal something or give a gift of something. There are the most amazing moments. And I've seen people that are fighting about something with themselves their entire lives and go through a very difficult process or difficult patterns in their lives that repeat themselves over and over again. And in the moment that they accept their own mortality and face it, all of a sudden, all of these things fall into place and they can accept their lives and who they are and how they've lived it as they see a deeper understanding of it or they connect with the underlying patterns and a lot of things fall into place. And oftentimes when there's peace, it's like people can go. And there's a great quote that I love that is actually from a book. It's a fictional book from Gabriel Garcia Marquez, 100 Years of Solitude, where main character at some point says, people don't die when they want to, they die when they can. And I find it to be very, very true. And it's not just because people die when they can, because other people allow them, but also when they're ready, when they can let go and accept within themselves. It's an amazing moment. It's almost as glorious as birth. And I oftentimes think it's interesting that in our human experience, we are so happy when babies are born, even though they have not really lived anything, we don't know them yet, and we, we celebrate them. Whereas people that have accomplished a lifetime are mourned instead of celebrated. And I think, actually, it should be the same. We should celebrate that people have accomplished their lives. Like you graduate from school, you celebrate that as well. Why not celebrating the accomplishment of having lived a life, you know, to the best of your ability? I agree with you. And actually more and more when I have had friends or relatives pass in the most recent history, I've then been invited to their celebration of life instead of their funeral. And for me, I think that is such a lovely way to honor them and to have known them, to have had them in your life. Exactly. I've kind of jumped ahead because I just wanted the world to know that you do this wonderful thing for people. I'd like to go back a little bit. You were born in the Netherlands before you moved to California. Can you tell the listeners a bit about your story, how you got to the point where you are now, a bit about that path? Well, that's quite a long story, but I'll try to make it short. I was born in the Netherlands. I'm the oldest of four. 
I had not a very easy childhood. My mother was an alcoholic and a bit of a narcissistic, depressed woman, abusive. My father was a hardworking man and didn't see him much because he was always gone, but he actually fell ill when I was very young and I was about 11. He had a stroke. Soon afterwards, our household became even more difficult and I've always been fairly independent. So I ended up moving out early. I was, I think, barely 16 years old, still in school, but I moved out and I thought, yeah, I feel like I can take better care of myself than my parents are taking care of me. I lived in a room that I rented uh, not that far away from my parents' house. And I finished school. I went to work on Friday nights and Saturdays and just continued my life. And along the way, I met people that inspired me or helped me. So I was interested always in, in spirituality and read a lot of books. My grandfather actually founded a publishing company. So I grew up with mountains of books in my house. So I've read everything I could. So I learned a lot through reading books as well. So I was always curious and knew there was more between heaven and earth. When I was a child, I actually had clairvoyant abilities. I could see things that weren't physically there. I knew things were going to happen. I also always knew where the Christmas presents were hidden, so to speak, and it drove my mother nuts. So around the age of 18, 19, I came in contact with the mother of a friend of mine who was into spirituality, and she taught me about meditation and uh, spiritual practices. I ended up going to a school in the Netherlands that was founded by people that had graduated from a school here in Berkeley, California, called the Berkeley Psychic Institute way back in the 70s. There was a couple, the man was American and the woman was Dutch, and they had set up a school in the Netherlands. And the school was all about learning how to meditate, learn about working with energy, healing techniques and energy techniques, and to become more conscious of yourself and to really learn what your own space is and taking ownership of who you are. And so I enrolled in that school. And after about a year of taking classes, I thought, I want to go where these people came from. And so way back in the early 90s, 1989, I decided I'm going there. I remember I was working for a, a company that was taking care of people that were stranded all over the world, Dutch people. And I was in a kind of like a help service company where you would help stranded people for whatever reasons that were all over the world, tourists, Dutch tourists. And so I had access to a lot of uh, travel uh, agencies and all. And I actually just simply ended up booking a ticket to California, one-way ticket. And sometime in the summer of 1990, I ended up packing two suitcases and I had $300 in my pocket. And I ended up going to California, to Berkeley, where these people had had their training. And I started my training there and I spent 10 years at BPI and later also at Sclepium, which is an affiliation of Berkeley Psychic Institute. And then I ended up doing other modalities, matrix energetics with Richard Bartlett and more of my own research. And the rest is history. I stayed in California and started my practice and that's what I'm still doing. And you actually are ordained reverend as well, somewhere along the way. When you're graduate from the Berkeley Psychic Institute, you become a licensed minister. You go actually through minister's training. And this is an interesting story because some of that is 
really because spirituality and religion are connected, but also for a practical reason that in the United States, under the freedom of religion, it's illegal to do prediction and psychic abilities, but it's your license as a minister. So in a way, becoming a minister and being trained as a minister gives you the license to be spiritually active. So it's also an issue of law to actually become a licensed minister when you do this kind of work. I think it's actually federal, but for sure in California, it's the case. So I just want clarification on my understanding of that. So you're saying you can't be saying that a psychic without that training. You, you cannot do any fortune telling. That's kind of against the law. In the um, US. Yeah, that's what we were told. So that's practically the case. But spirituality and religion are not that far apart. Way, way, way back in the beginning, it was all spiritual. And then as time went on and crowds grew, religion became a more accepted practice also because it was a way of crowd control. I think in our human history, our biggest lesson is really to how to deal with power. And this was one stage in that process of how do you deal with power in being able to control the masses? So I think that somehow or another that became part of spiritual practice and religions were formed in that way as well. So, or in that way, I think it's related and laws I think have catered to that or are based on that. But in my schooling, you could choose either to do a non-religious path or do your training based on the Bible. And I actually did the religion trained on the Bible. You could do a, a regular teacher's program or a religious teacher's program. And I actually ended up doing the religious teacher's program. I was originally raised Catholic, so I'm familiar with Christianity. And I'm not really fond or interested in the way the church interprets religion, but I do have a strong feeling for who Jesus was, the stories of the Bible, what is actually really being said rather than what you're being programmed to understand and to kind of look behind the words of the Bible into a lot of spiritual information and spiritual law. I have a lot of respect for that. Yeah, well, Jesus speaks in uh, metaphor, doesn't he? So the meaning behind what he's saying is quite different than the literal meaning that is taken by so many religions. Exactly. The way you offer readings and uh, sessions to people is very unique. And I can say that absolutely because I've had a few sessions with you now. And I find the way that you work is fascinating. As you explained to me, you seek out an individual's energetic signature and apply, I'm going to call it a color overlay, if you will. Can you please tell the listeners a bit about the methodology that you actually created? Yeah, thank you. I had my training. And interestingly enough, the way I work has nothing to do with what I learned in school. But I have grown, not even thought about how am I going to do this my way, but it just grew as I grew myself. I found that perception is really important. So we perceive through our senses. And I found that when you perceive color, Color is the only perception that your analytical brain cannot really argue with. Any other perception, such as taste and smell, you can have a value judgment about. You can say it's sour or sweet or hard or soft, or you can analyze that. But when you perceive color, red is red, blue is blue, green is green. And so I found that through 
connecting with energy because everything is energy. Everything we feel, talk, feel, touch is all energy. We are energy. But if you perceive energy through color, you go further than your analytical thinking and your understanding into knowing. And so when I work with people, how I start my connection with people is that I ask people to say their name. And I want people's full name given at birth and the name they go by today, because I see that to be kind of like an energetic signature of who they are. When people hear their name called, something within them responds. And that's what I want to connect with. And when I look at the energy of a name visually, I see colors. So I can speak to that person knowing their name and looking at the colors, I, I can really connect with who they are. And I'll talk about that in that way. So through a color, I can say, I can see you're spiritual. You have a lot of desire to communicate, to express yourself. I see you. So it, it goes in a, in a lot of different directions because colors go much further than understanding. They go into a deeper knowing. Some people ask me, so what happens when two people have the same name? You know, because there's a lot of names that, that are similar or the same. And in fact, I have a couple of people in my practice that sort of have the same name. But because you are who you are and it's your signature, these two names show up with different colors. So it's really about your essence, your specific essence, that what the name shows. So, And that's how I connect with people. And from there, the conversation starts. It's a dialogue. People show me who they are, and I translate it back to them. So the more people are willing and able to reveal themselves, the more I can say. So really, it is an interaction and a dialogue between us, even though I mostly do the talking, most especially in the beginning when I start with the name. It's a beautiful exchange. I'm always um, fascinating to see how a spirit creates a human experience and how a spiritual essence translates itself into a male or female identity and a personality and a character and how that all comes comes into being. It's always a unique story and it's always quite a beautiful story because our human experience is really actually a beautiful thing when you get to look at it. It's a miracle. In preparation for this podcast, I listened to the first reading from you just to revisit what you said. Oh, and wow. It's been how long ago? I don't know. Two about months. 10 or 12 <laughs> years ago. Yes, about yeah. 10, I think, probably, maybe something like that. But I remember the color pink came up, but I can't remember if that was for my first name or my maiden name. You asked my maiden name, my middle name, my current yep. name, and my... So that's how it differentiates itself. You're quite spot on, I have to say, when I re-listened to it, so that was very interesting for me. So it's no wonder I'm doing with this podcast, because I think this kind of work is what I was destined to do. What are some of the beliefs that empower you? One of the beliefs I have that I want to tell people often is that our human body, our human experience is really equal to our spiritual awareness. In so many historical religious practices, it was felt that the spirit was more important than the body because the body is temporarily and it's mortal and it it will fall away and that spiritual practices are immortal and forever have to do with the divine and that's higher than our human space but i find that that we're really sabotaging ourselves in our 
consciousness and our ability to be happy or balanced if we keep looking at it that way. I think some spiritual and also religious practices, there is the tendency to to not eat or to fast, which is not eating, but also to refrain from doing things that really are physical well-being through maybe suffering. So there's a vision of climbing on your hands and knees to temple, isn't there? There's all sorts of yeah, or what they did is flagellating yourself, like hitting yourself uh, mm-hmm. to punish yourself with a rope or a piece, piece of leather or even something worse, or to starve yourself in order yeah. to get to a space of enlightenment. That God I know doesn't want that for us. I don't think so. Well, I mean, it's so really actually counterintuitive. Why would we create a human body and a human experience if we invalidate that and try to overcome that, it's almost like we're working against ourselves. And it says it in the Bible. In the Bible, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. How do I see this as you have a conscious thought about yourself, and you create a mental image picture of your identity and of your space? And the space is a, a consciousness in the beginning is the word and the word was made flesh. So there's a mental image picture. There's a thought. And then you actually manifest that thought into first, basically the astral body and then the physical body. You bring energy into a gravity well and you become physical. And how that obviously occurs is through your parents who come together and through conception you create a physical body, but there's a spiritual process that is ahead of that physical event. You create that picture and you actually energize that picture until it becomes physical. And your body is really the first and probably the most important creation of you as a spirit. It represents you. So why would you then so invalidate that after you've created it? You're actually then take something away from yourself doesn't serve. It doesn't help you to be fully yourself. So what I believe is that to really honor your human experience as a spiritual consciousness, I think is really important. So the idea of being a martyr, of sacrificing yourself, really do not work. You will have to catch up with that. Being inspired, being a healer, and being of service to other people is extremely important, but not on the account of yourself. So if you are of service to people, be equally of service to yourself. Do not leave yourself behind in the process of being there for other people. In my case, a lot of people ask me, are you ever going to get tired of working so hard with so many people on such deep level? And I actually tell people, you know, that the biggest work, the hardest work I'm doing is actually working on myself. And making sure that I am learning, that I'm open, that I'm healing, that I'm growing, that I'm experiencing. So the more I allow myself to be myself in my human experience, the more I can be of service to other people. I can, through my own work, participate in the lives of other people. I'm not taking it on. I'm not telling them what to do. I'm not taking over. I just want to participate. I bring an energy vibration to my connection with other people that will inspire through how energy works. It will connect. And through inspiration, I will be able to be there for other people. But the work really is within myself. 
Yeah, and isn't it interesting to see when you're actually working with the client, I often will see aspects of myself and just working with them and seeing the feedback I receive from them. I have an enlightened moment on myself, an aspect of myself, an aha moment I like to. Yeah, that's the beauty. That's the beauty. That's our collective human experience showing up. And the beautiful thing is you cannot see the other person unless you see yourself. A great example is, and this is has nothing to do with spirituality, but it's a good example. When Christopher Columbus came to America for the first time and showed up in a bay with large ships, the Native Americans that were on the shore did not see anything. They couldn't see those boats because they had no mental image picture of what a boat was of that shape. They had their own canoes, but they have never in their psyche had a mental image picture of a ship. And so they they had no ability to see it. And this is fascinating. It means that you can only see what you recognize. And what you recognize is you can see in the other person what is in yourself. And you cannot see what you don't have. That works on all levels. When you work with people, you see what you can see because you have it within yourself. And that's why pure communication and true communication is so powerful because it works both for the giver and the receiver equally. I tell you, Pamela, I feel like my job is awesome because I'm in the first row of life stage and I get to see it all. I feel so blessed because I learn every day. I feel blessed. I feel privileged and blessed that I get to do this. Well, you're clearly passionate about what you do. Where would you say that passion comes from? I almost sense that you were born with it. I'm a very positive, optimistic, and realistic person. I just love life. And it sounds really strange, but I love myself, not in a narcissistic way. I just know myself. Knowing and consciousness is also a form of love. And I'm curious, and the more I get to discover and explore and see, the more life is available, the more love there is, and the more joy there is. I love to see everybody in some way feel the essence of being alive as a blessing. And if there's anything I can do to make it come about or make that available or point it out, then I'm happy. It multiplies. The, the beauty of a collective experience in a human space is that it's magical. It really is a miracle. It's magical. And we together can be more than the sum total of our separate parts. And that's the joy and the excitement and the passion I feel. Like it's just a beautiful experience. I cannot say anything else. Your energy's coming through, that's for sure. I have one wish for anybody in the world, everybody in the world, is that they never lose their curiosity. I think curiosity is one of my top values. It's so important to remain open-minded and curious and not close ourselves off to the gifts that are happening around us all the time if we were only willing to see. It's challenging because you come to, as you just said, you communicate with someone and you get these aha moments and you go, oh my God, I get it. I know how this works or I see what the essence is of this. And then it's so easy to say, okay, now I got it. I have the truth and this is it. And in that very moment, as soon as you've discovered something, you're still open-minded. But when you consider, okay, now I got it you actually close your mind uh, because you think you have it figured out. 
And then until the next thing happens, so you go, oh, I don't know anything about this. And then you get to be curious again. And then that's where you move forward again. So even though an aha moment is awesome, it's both the end of something and the beginning of something else. And if you allow that to be, and you don't think in absolute values, which means you continue to accept life and death every moment of your life, you get to always growing and be curious. I used to be really righteous. I'll just say that. I admit it. (laughs) But, (laughs) um, But you think we think we got it figured out. And then oftentimes it's a transition that happens to us in life, whether it's a death, a divorce, being made redundant, a pandemic, or whatever it is. You have a powerful perspective with respect to the human experience. And you told me that the human experience is a blessing and that there is an intelligence that comes from trauma. Can you expand on that? I think it'd be fabulous for people to understand that trauma isn't all doom and gloom and awful things. When trauma happens to us, there's a lot of growth. Yes, it's a lot of growth. I think part of why trauma is painful, it is because we are confronted with things in ourselves that are not moving. Belief systems, thoughts, patterns, emotional patterns that are not moving. And so trauma hits that and usually not in a good way. Trauma doesn't come from something kind or loving. Trauma comes from something difficult or painful. It is actually the invitation to change and grow. That's a great way to put it. It is. And then the response to trauma is really interesting. So for instance, I came from a very difficult childhood and I've learned patterns that had to do with surviving. And at the time that I had to survive as a child, those patterns was what I could think of to do in order to survive. And obviously, I'm still here and I'm functioning. Those responses were actually good. But over time, that might not be the case. Now, in my adult space, those same patterns might actually be an obstacle to my growth and well-being in present time. The interesting thing about trauma is that it's always really based on intelligence, that you know that at the time that you needed to do something or respond to something, you did the best you could and you drew out of yourself from the collective field of humanity an answer to a problem that was the best thing you could do. And I think there's an intelligence to that, an intelligence of knowing how to deal with it. We have, as a collective human group, survived so many things. We have survived the plague and we've survived war and dictatorship and pandemics and holocausts and all kinds of horrendous events and also personal tragedies, uh, death, abuse, famine, all kinds of things. And so even though our bodies are our age, we have a connection to our history, our ancestors. And so the intelligence of our bodies is actually thousands and thousands of years old. And so we can connect with that. We can use that and trust that. So I feel like if we step out of away from judgment and perfection, that life should be perfect and really connect to meaning and possibility and see trauma as a way of pointing out what we know and what we still have to learn and nothing more or less than that, then we don't have those absolute values. And we don't have to get into pain when we go through change. 
and I said it earlier, if we see it as a lesson learned and something we can use to move forward with, and we participate in each other's lives that way, we inspire each other and we collectively grow. We can pull all our resources together as we are required to do right now in the world, especially with this incredible change that's going on and the pandemic that we're experiencing. This can be a new collective trauma that we create and we can weaken ourselves and feel powerless or we can pull together and really move through the changes that we have already been working on to manifest. And I feel like this pandemic actually is part of the change we're creating. Sometimes we want to see something happen and that's a spiritual thing. But to actually live through it and experience it on a physical and emotional level is is another thing. But it's what we've asked for. It's the change we've been wanting. And if we can do this with the intelligence, the awareness of what it means to be human and validate the intelligence rather than judging the difficulty, I think we can do anything. When we were talking before, we both agreed that we think countries regions of the world have personalities. And you mentioned to me that you see this virus as providing lessons to the different personalities of the word, if you will, and each personality is different, so the lessons will be different. I'm sort of paraphrasing. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? When I was a child and still in school, I loved history. I was good at it. I was good at history because I saw each country as a personality, as a psychological entity, but I also see each country as a color. And just like the months of the year, the days of the week, for some reason, they all had colors for me. And that told me a lot about who they were. And so for me, history was always just really like a psychological situation that you could figure out. It had nothing to do with memorizing. It had just to do with understanding. I see the same thing today, that different countries respond to things differently. But I feel like this pandemic actually is an invitation to own who you are in your identity as a country, but to own that within the collective connection of humanity. This virus is not discriminating. It gets rich and poor people, people in developed countries and underdeveloped countries. It really is across the board. And I think our invitation is to honor who we are, but to connect with the collective human experience at the same time. And it has the potential to bring us together within acknowledging our differences to bring us together and to not make the differences be a reason why we should go further apart. I think in our differences, we can have different responses and different solutions to a problem we share. So it's multifaceted rather than separating. And I feel like we're facing a great opportunity in our human experience. The world has seen pandemics and disasters before, but never I mean, modern times, has it been so collective? A war is one country against another, but a Mm. pandemic is like, we're all in this together. And that's a different energy to deal with. As difficult as this pandemic is, and as many people suffering, we get to be home, we get to be reflecting, we get to do our own personal growth. We're not distracted by just going out and being social as we normally are. And we're all in this together. We're all together at home by ourselves. That's a unique situation that we've never had in this world before. 
And I think it's the invitation of true change and transformation. It's a fascinating virus. Why is it rampant in Arizona and Spain, but not in Greece? And, you know, (laughs) I don't know. It doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. Even where people are flying from one country to another, they haven't. It just shows up. I think it's moving in our food supply, but it's fascinating how people are reacting to it. Countries are reacting to it very differently. It's true. And I feel like the virus is actually exposing that we're already there, but we're ignored. For instance, I think that you do see where the virus is more active in places where people have maybe a lesser quality of life, or there are stress, other stress factors there, like where different races have different qualities of life or opportunities in life, or different races are, are affected differently by the virus. And then there's also these differences in social economic statuses. And that the virus really exposes there where we are different or where we are not in harmony with ourselves or life itself. I think the virus just exposes that and it has nothing to do with our assessment of the world. I think it dismantles false belief systems and illusions and assumptions and really kind of exposes us to the truth and specifically of inequalities that were there long before this virus showed up. The virus just shows it. That's something that I think needs to be taken into account in how to respond to this virus and also understanding what it means. Yeah, it's a brilliant perspective. Hey, world, we still have a lot of work to do, right? Yeah, yeah. but it's happening. Yeah, it we have a lot of work to do, but we're getting the chance to do it now, to do something really meaningful. It's 5 to 12. The hour has arrived. So there's a lot of fear. But in most Western countries, fear is considered a negative. But in very many tribal and Native American cultures, fear is actually considered a positive. Fear is the beginning of an adventure. It's actually the moment of significant change. I love this quote that says, fear is excitement in need of an attitude adjustment. And I feel like we have a choice. We're afraid and we have the right to be afraid and reasons to be afraid. But is that fear that makes us small and are we defeated or is this fear because we're at the, at the eve of a new adventure? Mm-hmm. And it's a choice to make. I'd rather see us all considering, wow, this is a wake-up call and we are on the eve of a great new adventure, a new segment in our human experience. And let's say yes to that rather than shine away and in fear and feel defeated. And fear helps to keep us safe, doesn't it? In a way, in a good way. I'm thinking about travel societies and whatnot. It's good that you have fear to not jump off a cliff. Fear is also connected to that intelligent part of the body that has learned to survive trauma. So it's a warning. Also in fear as keeping yourself safe, it actually is a positive because you can draw on the intelligence of your body and your emotional body that knows how to survive. It never really has to be a negative unless you are defeated by it. And then you put yourself out of the game. Thank you for your perspective. I think it's really refreshing to hear, especially when some of the press have such a negative doom and gloom attitude as to what's happening, I think, and instill more fear than there needs to be. That's my perspective. So our time is almost coming to an end. I want to ask you one more question. Yes. 
Lastly, knowing everything that you do now, what message do you have for your younger self? I would say the most important message would be to be kind and patient with myself. For me personally, I would say that that points to not being so critical of myself. It's good to be discerning and to be ambitious or desiring and hoping for a great future and wanting to get there, but to not be in a hurry, to not dismiss where you are in present time and to not judge yourself because you put yourself against yourself and actually that will make you step back. I'd say if I want to give myself a message is to be kind and patient, to keep doing what I'm doing, but to be specifically kind and patient with myself. That's a great message. That's something I have to tell myself often as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> Just so used to pushing and pushing and pushing through when I was pushing younger. And pushing, that, uh, yeah. It's one of those patterns that you learn as youngster and doesn't necessarily serve you any longer. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And I know that our listeners will get a lot out of it. So I just want to say thank you. I was honored to have you as a guest. Pamela, it was an honor to be here. I love talking to you. And I'm so glad we still talking to each other after all these years. I feel honored. It was great to be here. And thank you for having me talk to your listeners. And I hope people have enjoyed our conversation. I'm sure thank they you. will. It was great. I appreciate it. Ciao. Please remember to subscribe and share across social media. I'd really appreciate that, as Awaken to the Best You is my way of giving back. The more, the merrier. And I'd also love to read your comments, so please send your feedback my way so I know how to help you the most. Thank you again. Ciao for now.